So please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please also turn with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we will be confessing together Lord's Day 43, which consists of question answer 112. As always, we will begin by reciting a portion of question 92, which is the Catechism's articulation of the Ten Commandments, and for us specifically, the Ninth Commandment. As always, I will read the question, if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 92 says, What is God's law? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Question 112. What is God's will for you in the Ninth Commandment? That I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, I should avoid, under penalty of God's wrath, every kind of lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. And in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. I should do whatever I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. Well, let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good, but we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, 
Satisfy our, our hunger and quench our thirst with your truth that we with all our hearts may love and serve you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, boys and girls, what are the three sections of our catechism? Violet? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. In which section are we in? Gratitude. Very good. Uh, what are the three elements of true faith? Noel? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what is the content of this faith? Isaiah? Apostles' Creed. And what, what benefit do we receive when we profess this faith? Annabelle? Christ's righteousness. Where does this faith come from? Isaiah? The preaching of the word. Very good. And what else does the Spirit use? Noel? The sacraments. Very good. What are the two keys of the kingdom? Marcus? Very good. Church discipline and preaching of God's word. Now, what are the three elements of a good work? Three elements of a good work. A little bit tougher question. Ezekiel. Exactly, very good. So, because good works need to conform to God's law, uh, that is why we are spending so much time considering the meaning of the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments is a basic summary of the moral law of God that applies to all people in all times and places. Now, boys and girls, what question does the first commandment answer? Marcus? Who we should worship. What question uh, do the second and third commandments answer? Micah? Uh, what uh, close? Noel? Oh, sorry. Uh, Lise? How we should worship. Very good. And then um, uh, the fourth commandment, what question does that answer? Annabelle? When we worship. Very good. Um, and of course, all that is about um, worshiping God. So uh, the what definitely does apply. And now the second table of the law concerns our love for neighbor. And so we've considered how we are called to honor our father and mother, and by extension, every earthly authority. We have considered in the sixth commandment that we're called to love our neighbor. The sixth commandment is representative of the entire second table of the law. The seventh commandment, we've considered how we are called to love our neighbor by pursuing purity. And in the eighth commandment, we're called to love our neighbor by working hard so that we might be generous. Now we come to the ninth commandment. Um, and before, before we reflect upon this ninth commandment, I think it's important for us to step back and consider a kind of a big picture point. Now, the, the catechism takes the, God's law very seriously. It spends, I don't know how many, but a, a number of Lord's Days on the law of God as God's will for us as Christians. And so one implication of this is that we are called to take God's law seriously. It is binding upon us. It's binding upon our consciences. consciences. However, as we... Um, seek to take God's law seriously, we need to be reminded of two very important points that correlate with two ditches or two trappings that we can fall into when we begin to recognize that we are called to take God's law seriously. And so the first one is, as we've thought about many times before, that our ethics, our relationship with the Lord is not conditioned upon our ethics. We have been brought into God's family graciously by the work of Christ and thus in God's family, we are called to live according to his family principles. And so this law is a law of gratitude. It's very important that we realize that this, the law comes in the gratitude section, that we, have been, uh, we are secure in Christ, we've been redeemed from our sin through Christ and by his merit alone. 
The second point is to recognize, as I said earlier this morning in the reading of the law section of our morning liturgy, that God's law does not speak explicitly to every issue and situation that we face in this life. The law gives room for Christian freedom and wisdom. Now, as I mentioned before, Christian freedom does not mean that, or Christian freedom is not an autonomous zone, that we can just do whatever we want because God's law does not speak explicitly to those issues. Rather, we are to use wisdom to seek to perceive how we can best pursue the goals of love for God and love for neighbor within those issues where God's law has not specifically spoken to. And so recognizing those two points are really important points to, uh, to understand as we seek to get, take God's law seriously. The law of God is a law of gratitude, and the law leaves room for Christian freedom and the use of wisdom. Well, in this Ninth Commandment, as we have seen in, in the previous commandments, uh, the Ninth Commandment requires us to do something positively. It requires us to tell the truth, but it also forbids something. It forbids lying. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. So we will consider both of those aspects, what this commandment commends, what it forbids. But before we do so, I'd like us to spend a few moments considering the importance of words, and specifically the, the idea that words reveal, they're revelatory. So there's many things that we could think about when we think about the importance of words. However, um, one thing that we see throughout Scripture is that words reveal. They're revelatory. They reveal our inner character. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying that the words that proceed from your mouth reveal the status of your heart. The words that proceed from your mouth are directly connected to either a virtue or a vice that are being harbored within your inner character or your inner being. So if you're speaking words of anger, disrespect, or deceit, those words are coming from a certain vice that's being coddled within your heart. Furthermore, the reason why this dynamic of our words revealing our inner character, the reason why this is true of us as human beings is because it's, first of all, true of God, in whose image we are created. So think about God's uh, revelation, which is given to us in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we are presented with a working God, and God works through the use of his speech, through the use of his words. And it's only through considering his words that we come to know who he is. So in Genesis chapter 1, how do you come to know that God is powerful? that God is good, that God is truth, that God is wise. Well, you come to know of all of those attributes through considering his speech, through considering his use of words in his creation week. And so this principle of out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks is as true of God as it is of us. So what God says in his written word is not arbitrary. God could not have hypothetically said in the ninth commandment, you shall bear false witness. And why? Why could, not, why could God not have said that? Well, because it would be in contradiction with his character. And God's speech has to be uh, directly connected to his inner being, to his inner character. And so God's law, God's gospel, 
all of God's written revelation is directly connected to his character. When God made Adam in his image, one of the tasks that God gave to Adam was to name the animals. And we read in Genesis chapter 2 that whatever Adam named the animals, that was their name. And so Adam was called to use words, and as Adam used words, he revealed his identity as an image bearer of God. And so when we come across individuals who are constantly tearing down, complaining, or, or speaking angry words, we need to realize that those words are not coming out of left field. They're not arbitrary. They're coming from some, some deep issue that's residing in their character. Contrastly, when you come across someone who's constantly positive and uplifting, someone whose words carry weight, meaning they mean what they say, that also is not arbitrary. It's not coming out of left field. Those words are coming from some virtue that's residing in the recesses of their character. And so words reveal. Our words reveal the status of our hearts, the status of our character, the status of our inner being. And this is true because it's true of God. Well, the ninth commandment, as we see in question answer 112, forbids lying, but it also commends truth-telling. So we're going to now consider the positive aspect of this ninth commandment, that we are called to speak the truth. Now, the foundation of truth-telling is rooted in the character and example of God. So, again, continue to think about Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, you see this repeated pattern. It's pretty obvious just in the, the, the format of, of your Bibles. This, this pattern of, of, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. This pattern is present in every day of, of the creation week. And God said, and it was so. What we see is that there was a direct correlation between God's words and reality. There was a direct correlation between God's words and reality. This really is the definition of truth-telling. The direct correlation between words and reality. What was the definition of a lie? Well, it's when your words do not conform to reality. And thus, contrastly, the definition of truth is when our words do correlate with reality. And we see that rooted in the character and example of God all, all, all the way at the beginning in his creation week. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, which is the passage that we read a few moments ago, we see uh, before that passage that we read that Christ ascended into heaven. And as he ascended into heaven, he poured out gifts upon his church. And these gifts took the form of pastors, elders, evangelists, teachers, and these officers within the church are called to build up the body of Christ for the intended result of the church not being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, what Paul is saying here, in the first half of Ephesians chapter 4, is that as members of the church, as members who are under the ministry of the word in a local church, we are called to speak the truth in love for the goal of building up the other members of the church into Christ. Paul says much the same thing in Ephesians 4.25 as he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Paul's saying that because we are united to one another through the bond of Christ, we owe it to our fellow church members to speak the truth to them. Paul continues a few verses later in verse 29 as he continues to speak to our use of words as he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul is, is, is giving us two directives here in Ephesians 4. On the one hand, he's saying that we are required, called by God through his law to speak the truth. However, the second directive that we're given here is that we are to use our words to build up. And so we're called to speak the truth and we're called to build up others through our use of words. Now, sometimes it's very easy for us to get out of balance when it comes to trying to seek to um, be faithful to these two directives. So on the one hand, we can place all the emphasis on building others up and forget about the directive of having to speak the truth. And when we do this, we run the risk of merely flattering others. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, we may lay all the emphasis on speaking the truth, especially speaking the truth about other people's sins, weaknesses, and shortcomings. And when we do this, our words do not build up, but rather they tear down. And so how do we faithfully seek to meet, or, or, or meet both of these directives? Well, one helpful solution is to be attentive and to affirm evidences of God's grace in other people. That could be evidences of God's common grace, preserving the image of God in that person, or evidences of God's special grace, renewing that person after the image of Jesus. But when you affirm evidence of God's grace, evidences of God's grace in other people's lives, you are both speaking the truth and you're building up. And so that's one helpful strategy uh, in order for us to be faithful to both of these directives that were given here in Ephesians chapter 4. We're called to be a people, a people who uh, build up and a people who speak the truth. Well, we also see in question answer 112 and in the ninth commandment that the ninth commandment calls us to avoid speaking untrue words. We are to avoid speaking lies, speaking deceit. Uh, we also see this in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, Paul here is contrasting both uh, falsehood and truth. And he's saying here in context that falsehood is rooted in the old man the old man who, who resides in our inner character and inner being. And he's saying that truth resides in the new man. Well, Paul here is making use of that principle that we saw Jesus uh, teaching us in Matthew chapter 12. And we know the Christian life is a life of, 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 of war between the old man and the new man. The old man um, produces lies and deceit, and the new man produces truth and words that build up. And so Paul is saying, put away the falsehood, put to death the old man and therefore seek to make alive that new man by speaking the truth to your fellow neighbor. Now, where does lying come from? In question answer 112, the catechism attributes lying to, to, to who? To whom? The devil, exactly. The works of the devil. And we see 
Jesus saying this in John 8, 44, as he is speaking to a group of Jews in his day. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice what Jesus is saying there. He again is continuing to make use of that principle that he gives us in Matthew chapter 12. Why is Satan a liar? Well, because his character is one of lying. When the devil speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying is the work of the evil one. God is truth, and his speech reveals that aspect of his character. Well, the devil's a liar, and his words reveal that aspect of his character. So when the devil speaks lies, that's not arbitrary. It's coming out of his character, and his character is one of being a liar and the father of lies. Now, when the serpent, the serpents lied to Adam and Eve in the beginning, that was the first form of speech that Adam and Eve heard that did not conform to reality. Think about that. Before that, every word that they heard perfectly conformed to the order of things, to reality. But that first lie that they heard from the serpent was the first form of speech that did not conform to reality. And thus, Ephesians chapter 4 in our catechism forbids lying, forbids deceit, calls us to put to death the old man and make alive that new man. Now, the catechism very helpfully fleshes out some points of application for us on, the, on, this, on this idea. So notice how the catechism says that we are called to twist no one's words. Now, what does it mean to, to twist someone's words? Well, imagine some, someone, one of you come up to me after, after this and you say, boy, Pastor Caleb, you just look so tired today, a little bit out of it. And I go home, I tell Mackenzie, you know, so-and-so came up to me and said I'm a terrible pastor and I did a terrible job today. Right? That's twisting that person's words. I'm taking those words in the worst possible manner and basically saying that they explicitly said what I'm um, taking those words to be in the worst possible manner. And we do this all the time, especially in, in, in times of conflict. We love twisting other people's words to fit our narrative. It is very easy for us to take other people's words in the worst possible way. And thus, the Ninth Commandment calls us to twist no one's words, to believe the best in others, to give people the benefit of the doubt. Well, the Catechism goes on and says, uh, or the Catechism says that this Ninth Commandment forbids gossip and slander. Now here it's, it's important to make, make a distinction. Um, Proverbs calls us throughout throughout the book, it calls us to be observant as we make our way through this world. We are to be observant of other people's actions and words, and specifically, we're called to be observant of the wisdom or lack of wisdom behind other people's actions and words. And as we do this, we are called to imitate the wise and steer clear of the foolish. And so there is a, a proper place for reflection upon other people's words and actions with those close to us. 
a spouse, maybe children of a, a certain maturity level, for the goal of growing in moral wisdom. I mean, think about if you're reading a book with, with your family and you reflect upon the virtues and vices of a character. What are you doing? You're reflecting upon the actions and words of a particular character, granted in a book, for the goal of growing in moral wisdom. So I think there is a proper place that, again, it takes a lot of wisdom to know where that line is, uh, where we speak, uh, speak about other people's actions and words for the goal of growing in moral wisdom, with a very tight circle. However, this line, there's a very, very, very uh, thin line between this and what the catechism forbids here, which is gossip and slander. Now, what's gossip and slander? Well, it's when we talk about other people's actions and words with a pretty broad circle for the goal of not growing in moral wisdom, but rather for the goal of finding some, some sort of satisfaction and enjoyment in the failures, sins, weaknesses of others, and for the goal of puffing ourselves up in pride. And so the catechism here is forbidding gossip, forbidding slander, forbidding speaking about other people for the goal of finding enjoyment in their failures and making ourselves feel better in terms of our ego. We also see, last of all, that the Catechism forbids uh, us joining and condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Now, Aristotle defined virtue as the median between two poles, a very helpful definition of virtue. And so when you take the, the virtue of courage, uh, the two poles of courage, or courage is the medium between two poles. On the one end of the spectrum is the, the pole of, of fear, and the other end of the, the spectrum is rashness, recklessness. Now, oftentimes, we only think of courage in the face of the one pole, courage in the face of fear. Right? When we think about courage, we think about pursuing a course of action in the face of a very terrifying situation. We don't oftentimes think of courage according to the other pole. But one manifestation of courage is waiting and being patient and not acting impulsively or rashly. When we wait and decide not to be rash, decide not to be impulsive, we're actually exercising the virtue of courage. And so think about all those times in which we condemn others in a state of high emotion, when really we should stop, wait, allow our emotions to dissipate, speak personally with that person at a later point in time, not push send on an angry text message. And when we do this, we are exercising the, the virtue of courage. So the catechism forbids rashness and calls us, to a certain extent, to act courageously by waiting and not acting impulsively. Well, as we seek to obey this commandment out of gratitude, it's, it's very important that we remember the true words of God's gospel promise. Again, as I mentioned before, God is truth, and thus every word that he speaks is true because it comes from his character, his character of truth. And thus, God's gospel promises are true. They are promises that we can depend upon, rest in, and trust in. And so when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he means what he says. If you have come to Christ by faith, you have entered God's rest. No matter how you feel, no matter how your week has gone, no matter what your performance has been in light of the ninth commandment, if you have come to Jesus by faith, you have entered the rest of God. You have been justified, and you are a child of God. And we are called to rest 
in those true gospel promises as we seek to live a life of gratitude and obedience to this ninth commandment. So let us pray.